0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 29th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up...
1: Israel will win this war, and when Israel wins, the entire civilized world wins.
0: But more than 100,000 Palestinians have been fleeing parts of Gaza as Israel continues its advance, this time on refugee camps. Also ahead.
2: Those African-American youth in the 1960s singing about love, that in and of itself is a kind of protest.
0: We'll find out how music becomes a direct source of soft power. And Simon Brook is joining me in the studio to look at the papers. Hello, Simon. What have you spotted?
3: Hello. So after the state of Maine disqualifies Donald Trump from standing in the next US presidential election, the New York Times explores what this means for his electoral prospects. The London Times looks at what we can expect of North Korea in 2024. And the FT explores what psychologists call attentional control. Thank you
0: very much indeed, Simon. That's all coming up on The Briefing with me, L mm Around 150,000 Palestinians are on the move as Israel pushes ahead with its military operations in central Gaza. Israel's prime targets are refugee camps, what it calls a new battle zone. Well, as the Israeli campaign continues, domestic troubles are resurfacing for the country's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. A draft decision from the Israeli High Court has been leaked and it indicates that it's likely to strike down a controversial law passed by the government as part of its overhaul of the judiciary. Well, to discuss both stories, I'm joined now by Paul Rogers, Open Democracy's international security expert and Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University. And also joining us on the line is Hannah McCarthy, a journalist who's been covering the war from Jerusalem since it began. A very warm welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, Hannah, let's begin with you. The, the, talking about the latest swathe of fighting in Gaza and as Israel moving its attention to the central part of the Strip, targeting refugee camps. And the, and the results have been, as you would imagine, there's more than 100,000 people fleeing.
4: Sure. So Israel has come in for heavy criticism from the international community for using um, the types of kind of you know large bombs that should not... Uh, be used in conventional warfare in such densely populated um, areas. Uh, the Gaza Strip was already one of the most densely populated places on earth before uh, the war on the 7th of October started uh, and the, the density we're seeing in southern Gaza and central Gaza at the moment as people effectively you know, are living in half that space means that any strike in a place like a refugee camp uh, is likely to have multiple casualties uh, and we actually saw the Israeli government in a very or the Israeli Defence Force in a very rare statement coming out and apologising uh, for the number of civil it killed in a strike on a refugee camp uh, earlier this week, uh, which seems to be a sign that you know it, it's worried about the international criticism um, of the high number of civilian casualties.
0: Has it given Hannah, a specific reason why it is targeting these refugee camps?
4: Again, it's saying that they are you know Hamas centres that they that is their official line that uh, in order to dismantle Hamas they need to. Uh, they need to kind of use their full arsenal of weapons and bombs uh, but again what we've seen from you know reporting on the internal policy of the Israeli defense force is that they have uh, significantly broadened um the scenarios in which they will use uh, lethal force uh, and large bombs compared with previous wars and I'm you know, if you look at even how American forces or British forces um, used uh, bombs or strikes in places like Mosul or Raqqa, what we're seeing is that uh, the Israeli forces are using a significantly wider metric for whether it's acceptable to kill civilians or not uh, in Gaza.
0: And what, Hannah, is a, is a reaction where you are, given the fact that you've, the international community has already recognised this stepping up and changing in approach from Israel? Uh, Israel going its own way, regardless of what appears to be the the, the pleas from the world's many countries in the West. Is there a sense in Jerusalem and other parts in Israel that this is still the right way to be doing things?
4: There is still broad support for, you know, quote unquote eradicating Hamas. Uh, The Israeli media would not showcase, you know, some of the Gaza reporting that we would, you know, typically see. Uh, So there are, you know, sections of, you know, Israeli society that just maybe aren't uh, watching uh, the same pictures or images that we are. Uh, there is there is really, you know, the hostages remain kind of one of the kind of, you know, po- reasons that this might pause. But at the same time, you know, people, there is broad support for continuing the war uh, and ending Hamas's control on Gaza. And the Israeli government have repeatedly said that has to be my military means. Uh, there are small anti-war rallies, but they're a very small section of the society.
0: Paul, just tell us a little bit more about how the international community is reacting to what is clearly a a gear change for the Israelis.
4: I
1: think there was some hope when we had the last pause uh, that things might ease and the Israelis might move to a different direction. That appears to be directly opposite what has actually happened. They're basically going even harder. And I think the sense is that probably within the Israeli defence forces at a senior level, there's some very bright officers who probably know uh, by now what many people have said from outside Israel, that Hamas cannot be destroyed as such. You can't destroy an idea. And if anything, the current result is probably to reduce more and more people who will support Hamas or its successor in the long term. And this is why I think what they're trying to do now uh, on the Israeli side is to get as much damage done to Hamas as quickly as they can while they can. Because, as you say, the issue really is one of how the international community, I know it's a very broad term, but it's how that reacts. And what you're seeing, I'd be mean, very worriedly, of course, is a big increase in anti Semitism in many countries. But beyond that, there seems to be a very wide concern. Um, not in the countries you would... I mean, it's happening in the countries you would expect across the Middle East and across much of the Global South. But it's happening in countries which otherwise are pretty closely allied to Israel. And you're seeing it very much in Britain. There are major demonstrations, not many of them reported, in towns and cities across the country every weekend and sometimes during the week. Um, that is persisting. And as far as the United States is concerned... It's the only country that really has a major say in what Israel does. It could pull the plug. I mean, so many of the weapons that are being used are coming directly from stores already in Israel that are part of uh, the United States' strategic weapons pile uh, stockpile, which they have overseas. So the Americans have the means to actually bring the war to an end, or probably at least, uh, pretty quickly. But they're not doing it partly for reasons of internal politics. So we're stuck where we are, with a stalemate, probably made more difficult for Netanyahu by this court decision, but also by the possibility of some sort of uh, negotiating offer being formulated in Cairo and Doha. We'll have to see very much over the next forty-eight hours whether that develops and whether it has any impact in the United States and possibly, just possibly, even in Israel as well.
0: Well, we'll talk about the Cairo um, issue in a moment because it is—it is obviously something that you see the international community trying to step up and say, "Look, we have to stop what is going on." But Hannah, if I can turn to you about to talk about this draft uh, leak from the Israeli High Court, which is indicating it's—it's it's going to strike down the the uh, reasonableness law passed by the Israeli government. Um, as part of the overhaul of the judiciary. This has been a perpetual problem for Benjamin Netanyahu, hasn't it? A law which, to all intents and purposes, appeases the far right, uh, makes the judiciary a little bit as as toothless as as, as possible, um, and was a huge problem for the Israeli government before the conflict with Hamas began.
4: Sure I, I attended several of the the protests in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem earlier in the year before the war began and it they attracted a huge broad section of Israeli society uh you know it was not a a left wing movement it was a a movement that united you know cross sections of society against the government uh, who effectively wanted to um uh, retract the ability for the judiciary to review uh, laws on a reasonable list. Um, criteria. So this is a kind of common uh, judicial review is common in many democracies, uh, and for many Israelis, particularly because there is no con- written constitution uh, in Israel, they viewed this as a threat to you know Israeli democracy and something they viewed as very important. Uh, so the fact that this has been, you know, Israel, Israel is a very leaky society. This, These things kind of happen and, and I almost wonder if this was expected by the judiciary, who I'm sure have come under significant pressure um, over this decision. Uh, the government had passed the legislation that would curb the judiciary's power but then the Supreme Court themselves had to basically rule on uh, the law, which is, you know, obviously a, a very uh, high-pressure situation for the judiciary to find themselves in. Uh, so what we hear from the draft that was leaked, uh, which was kind of discussed on an Israeli broadcaster uh, on Wednesday night, is that there is a one judge majority ruling uh, against this legislation. Uh, so they're ev- ev- effectively ruling against Netanyahu's government uh, in a wartime. So, you know, we're getting lots of rhetoric from uh, the right wing members of his coalition uh, that, you know, the judiciary should you know, reinforce the uni- unity uh, that Israel needs now. And this is not a time for division.
0: Paul, let's uh, return to the issue of international efforts to try to bring about some semblance of of peace in uh, Gaza. We have this Hamas delegation due in Cairo today to look at this Egyptian plan that it says could end the war. And the, the the indication is that this plan is a three-stage uh, affair with renewable ceasefires, uh, a staggered release of um, hostages held by Hamas, and uh, a staggered release of Palestinian prisoners in Israel. How much is this like? How much how, has, this, has this plan got legs?
1: It may have. That will depend very much, I'm afraid, on the United States' reaction to it. Um, One or two of the indications on the wires is that there is an American involvement. What level that is, is very different to say. And it'd be very interesting to see whether Blinken makes one of his regular trips to Israel in the coming days. But it is an indication that uh, Hamas taking a substantial group of people from its political office in Doha to Cairo, Is actually interested in this as a possibility. In other words, not just going through the motions. One suspects it may be the latter, but possibly not in this case. If it is in any sense a serious proposal, and the reaction of Hamas will indicate that, then at the very least, it puts more pressure on Netanyahu and his government. Whether it moves them is a very different matter. I mean, as Hannah was saying, the the so-called well, the peace movement in Israel is really very small and you are getting some demonstrations, but they're small-scale. There's much more concern, uh, as she said, with the hostages. So it's a possibility. It's a sign that there is work underway. And of all the countries, uh, Qatar is probably the country that has some degree of influence with the Israeli government. Virtually every other country in the region, and I would hazard a guess, even Egypt, has very little influence. So to that extent, it's a possibility. Uh, but whether it's got legs, um, maybe. but. The next two or three days will show that, I think.
0: Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Briefing. And thanks also to Hannah McCarthy joining us on the line from Jerusalem. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson, live on Monocle Radio, while the time is just nudging 13 minutes past midday. A quick summary now of the day's other news headlines. Here's Emma Searle.
5: Maine has become the second American state to disqualify former U.S. President Donald Trump from the Republican primary race. Shanna Maine Secretary of State, ruled that Mr. Trump had engaged in insurrection, making him ineligible to run for president. It follows a similar ruling by Colorado's Supreme Court last week. Mr. Trump said he plans to appeal both decisions. At least 10 people have been killed and dozens were injured following a wave of Russian missile and drone strikes which targeted several Ukrainian cities. The overnight attacks come after the U.S. approved its final aid package for Kyiv under existing authorization. Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, has organized the country's armed forces to hold military exercises in response to the UK's decision to deploy a warship to support neighboring Guyana. Nearly 6,000 soldiers are expected to take part in the drills. The move comes weeks after voters in a Venezuelan referendum back the creation of a new state in the Essequibo Territory. And L'Oreal heiress Francois Bettencourt-Meyer has become the first woman to amass a $100 billion fortune. The French businesswoman, along with her family, are L'Oreal's single biggest shareholders, with a stake of around 35%. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma.
0: Thank you, Emma. Now let's continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio, Simon Brooke, journalist, communications consultant, regular around the table here at Midori House. Welcome back. And I'm, I think I'm allowed to still say Happy Christmas.
3: Yeah, I think so. We'll do that. Happy Christmas to you too.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Right. Here's to business. What have you spotted?
3: Yes. Well, as we heard in the news a, a moment ago, that uh, Maine has been the, is the latest US state to uh, disqualify Donald Trump um, from being able to stand in the uh, US presidential elections next year because of his involvement in the uh, 6th of January 2020 attack on the Capitol. So the New York Times is exploring what this means and looking at where we go from here. Um, it points out that hours after that decision in Maine, the Secretary of State in California announced that Mr. Trump would remain on the ballot there. Um, we've also got Michigan and Minnesota um, having given him the green light to stand but these two those two decisions could be open to a challenge i think it's interesting just to remind ourselves what this why this uh, these decisions have been made and this is based on an obscure clause in the uh, uh, on a constitutional amendment to the us constitution uh, enacted after the civil war that disqualifies government officials who engaged in insurrection or rebellion from holding office um, and the paper reminds us there are, there are active lawsuits in 14 states and the next state which will probably make a decision is Oregon so it, it'll be interesting to see what happens it
0: is just that that fresh venture into uncharted territory which just seems so typical of anything to do with Donald Trump doesn't it uh, the, the the fact that in in Maine um, they have already said look no one has done this before but that's because no presidential candidate has ever before engaged in insurrection and the fact is that now that this feels does this feel different yet there's always that line isn't there that one is an one is an isolated incident two is something and three is a possible trend
3: I think we're definitely seeing a trend. Absolutely. Interestingly, the New York Times remind, uh, reports that on uh, that on Wednesday, the Colorado uh, Republican Party has said that it asked the Supreme Court to hear an appeal on the uh, Colorado decision. And I think this is interesting because there's a, a sort of a waiting game just to see when and if or uh, the Supreme Court will get involved in this issue. And as you say, this is another first that we're seeing, thanks to Donald Trump. Um, any kind of involvement by the Supreme Court would ratchet up the whole issue um, and, and uh, ask, prompt all kinds of other questions. There's also things about timing, how long it would take for a, a complete review by the uh, U.S. Supreme Court and a decision to be made. But one thing we do know is that every time um, a, a state legislature, um, a Supreme Court in a state takes these decisions, it, uh, see, it, it prompts a, a jump in uh, Donald Trump's ratings. And allows him and his supporters to continue that narrative of this is the deep state out to get our man. Uh, This is what you'd expect, wouldn't you?
0: Let's move on to another story, which is, well, it's an article in The Times that talks about uh, North Korea's Kim Jong-un and brings Donald Trump into it right from the first line. The fact that Donald Trump, although not in power, when in power His gestures, his movements, his actions triggered um, a string of events, which is now leading to the Times talking about Kim Jong-un thinking the unthinkable, which is, what, nuclear war?
3: Yeah, presumably. Um, It's still, obviously, the hermit kingdom is notoriously uh, difficult to analyse. But yeah, according to the Times' Richard Lloyd Parry, um, the the journey travelled by um, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un can be illustrated by two handshakes. One, as you say, with Donald Trump in 2018, which started a kind of nuclear disarmament conversation but the second uh was with vladimir putin which was last september at a rocket launch pad in siberia and and richard lloyd parry argues that kim has responded with with real sort of agility um to the changing political situation he says in, you know, in recent months uh kim has continued along the path of high-speed military development while chumming up to russia and remaining on the right side of china um What's also interesting, um, the piece points out that one of the biggest challenges to North Korea is a change of strategy Um, pursued by a new conservative South Korean president, Yoon Suk-yeol. And instead of shrugging off North Korea's missile tests and sort of military aggression, um, the the South Korean government in Seoul now sees uh, the the best reply to these with a show of strength, um, which is intended to underline um, Kim's military inferiority.
0: Okay, what else have you spotted, Simon?
3: Um, Also, I think this is quite interesting, uh, looking at the, the... I was interested to see how the Times of Israel would report this story of a number of Western powers who have condemned Iran for uh, accelerating its uranium enrichment. I think, obviously, this is particularly significant for uh, Israel at the moment. Um, And uh, the paper reports, quotes... Western governments that Iran's production of highly enriched uranium has no credible civilian justification. And then uh, uh, governments in the UK, the US, France, and Germany are calling on the Iranian leadership to immediately reverse these steps and de-escalate its nuclear programme. The paper, the Times of Israel quotes Iran's top nuclear official, Mohammed Eslami, saying we have done nothing new and our activity is according to the regulations. Well, it might be, but given the sort of heightened political military situation in the Middle East, this is particularly important.
0: And also the fact that, that this is such a huge change. Again, back to Donald Trump, yeah. his withdrawal of the United States from the the, the, Israel, the Israel the Iranian um, nuclear deal precipitated this this sort of wild deviation, and in Iran now seems totally committed to to uranium. In Richmond.
3: It does, absolutely. I mean, I think also the question is, I mean, one perhaps a little bit of good news we might hang on to here is that people were expecting of expecting Iran and its proxies, Hezbollah, to be more active on behalf of Hamas. But, uh, you know, in this war, but it does seem that the Iranians have taken a step back. Perhaps they have looked over the, the precipice and just thought, actually getting involved here could be serious for us as, as uh, you know, political leaders as well as for the country so it does seem to be slightly less involved as some people uh, had feared but of course it depends really now um, on, on how the uh, events uh, unfold in the Middle East.
0: Finally, a practical approach to concentration, courtesy of the Financial Times. The one time I actually did sit down and properly give it some attention because it might be useful.
3: It might, absolutely. So yeah, attentional control is what psychologists call it and this according to um, uh, Grace Lorden who is author of the Big, sorry Think Big an associate professor at the LSE and founding director of the Inclusion Initiative and this is the art of challenging your mental resources fully into specific tasks like a lot of us I think my attention span is just, I mean it's just like to sorry, where was it? What was I saying? I have any no idea. idea. Exactly. So, but apparently, according to Professor Lorden, this is a superpower that can level up your well-being and turbocharge your productivity. So obviously she had my attention when she mentioned that. She says it's freed up to four hours a day in her working life, which is great. One, What's that... the
0: secret, Simon? My <laughs> exactly. attention's not going to last long enough. I was
3: going to say, I've already forgotten what I was saying. But apparently one thing you can do um, is to ask, before you allocate one neuron of attention to any task, you've got to ask two questions do you care about the outcome and can you control the outcome and i just think the number of meetings i've attended i'm sure you have as well where i've just thought the answer to both of those questions is no so if they if that is no in both cases then what are you doing there don't don't do it do something else
0: right that's going to create a lot of people just standing up and walking out of meetings And why not let's Absolutely. have a nationwide
3: international protest
0: fantastic well we'll end it there then thank you simon <laughs> that was simon brooke you're listening to the briefing on Monaco radio Now, as we edge closer to the new year, let's take a closer look at what the fashion world has in store for us in 2024. I'm joined in the studio by Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Natalie, a very warm welcome to you. Looking ahead into your fashion crystal ball, what are we going
6: to be falling in love with in 2024? It's hard to tell because I think there's so many different trends and then different fashion tribes all happening all at once. But I think the big question for the new year is whether we're still going to be fascinated by quiet luxury and, and whether people will be embracing that. And And I think that the hope for me for 2024, I don't have the crystal ball, but the hope is that People are embracing that more as a mindset and a way of life. And we will keep seeing customers shopping more mindfully and buying pieces that are timeless. So that kind of approach to design. Just recap for us what exactly quite luxury means, because some people might take it for as what you have
0: just said, which is buy less, buy well, buy for the long term. But others just say it's a more understated way of splurging
6: that's true and i think a part of the consumers might be looking at it like that and it's just in the in the last few years brands like loro piana brunello cucinelli have really become a lot more popular and it is a, you dress in more neutral colors easier silhouettes but these are the kind of pieces that you can keep in your wardrobe forever. And there are also these brands that are rising in popularity are the ones that make things the most responsibly. So if we just shift our mindset from looking at it as a as the trend of the last few seasons and more into how we dress in the long term, how we approach consumption, I think that should be the way forward in 2024. You said something very
0: interesting a moment ago, which is the idea of the tribal element of fashion.
6: Is Fashion
0: getting more tribal, and is it going to continue to do so in twenty four?
6: I don't think it's getting more tribal. I think even in the past, I mean, you were just telling me that you saw a mod on on a motorbike uh, coming into the office, and I think in the past we we had those tribes. We could see them much more. I think now it's playing out in a smaller more niche level, but they do exist. And and youth culture is always evolving. It's present. Maybe it's happening more online at the moment, but it, it is there. And I think there's people, especially the ones that are really getting into vintage clothing and rediscovering clothes from the past and and past decades that are making their own kind of modern tribes. And it's interesting when you talk about
0: tribal and you look at someone like a mod that you mentioned, they have different clothes from different brands, yet they have a look. If we are to look at a more tribal approach in 2024, are we going to look at people who are ferociously loyal to Vuitton, to Gucci, to Moschino, or, or people will belong to a certain brand tribe?
6: I think that's a great point. And we are seeing brand tribes, especially as these brands, the, the mega brands that you mentioned, have reached such scale, such global scale. And they are people that are extremely loyal. They fly around the world to attend their events. They buy every single new launch and, and they chase those pieces. They have personal shoppers around the world sourcing it for them. So that is a, a type of tribe, a very modern type of of fashion tribe that is centered around following a brand, its creative director and collecting everything that they do. And now that brands are also opening hotels and hosting events and partnering with chefs, there's also these new ways to engage with them.
0: I think there are a couple of uh, brands that could do with chasing some creative directors as well, because what I mentioned, Vuitton, Gucci, McQueen, they're all in
6: need of a leader in 24, aren't they? Exactly. A lot of houses have either just recently appointed new creative directors or they're in the chase for new leaders. Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Tom Ford have all just debuted uh, collections by new creative directors and really different chapters very completely different aesthetics and especially in the case of Gucci for example Louis Vuitton uh really turned the new chapter by bringing on Farrell to lead its menswear division so in the new year we're going to really see these houses And their new strategies take shape. And there will also be houses like McQueen, which is still searching for a creative director who are going to show us something completely new. How rich
0: a pool have they got to
6: dip into for new creative directors? Or are we going to see people just going,
0: making the rounds again? People who we've seen in other houses who might have had a falling out with their brand and then looking themselves up rather like a very well-dressed football manager?
6: It's interesting. I think a lot of it is exactly, it happens exactly how you've described it. And when you go to fashion weeks and attend fashion shows, there's always, people are always speaking about who's going where, what are the changes that are happening. And it's the same pool of talent. But an important conversation that started this year, and I think it's going to be even more important and, and even more pertinent next year, is that we need a broad, to broaden the, the talent pool. We need more female designers, for example. There, there was a lot being said about caring, only hiring male creative directors and about, yeah, looking a little bit outside the box for for leaders of these brands
0: Uh, one leader and we've talked about tribe as well is uh, phoebe philo i mean the philo files had a lovely time in 2023 they got her first solo collection sold out in seconds online despite the price tag that made everybody's jaws drop where does she go next year having actually consolidated a position after what six seven years silence after her departure from celine
6: Finally, yes. We, we've seen her her launch after so many years of, of waiting for it. And I think 2024 will be the year that we finally see Phoebe Philo designs on the streets and how her bus- new business model is going to play out because it's interesting how she launched. She is very in the background, unlike a lot of her colleagues. She didn't even show up in... Uh, The press appointments that she was doing, the journalist could just go into her showroom in West London and look at the clothes, but she's completely absent. You haven't really heard her perspective. And the way the clothes are being launched are in small drops online every couple of weeks, every couple of months. There's no set schedule. So it will be interesting to see how that continues and how it evolves. And if that interest and that momentum will sustain throughout the next year.
0: I'll have to leave it there. Natalie Theodoti, thank you so much for joining me in the studio and the happiest of New Year's to you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Finally on today's programme, the December-January issue of Monocle magazine is available now on newsstands, and within it you'll find our annual soft power survey featuring countries that have mastered the delicate art of global influence. While countries have long employed a myriad soft power methods, today we focus on one subtle tool of persuasion, but quite a direct one as well, music. It has time and again shaped international politics, including the American civil rights movement. Well, earlier Monocle's Andrew Muller heard from Professor Professor Rayland Rebecca, director of the Center for African and African American Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. And Andrew began by asking Rayland whether the civil rights protests had a more intimate relationship with music than other movements.
2: The civil rights movement is unique in that, at least in in my book, Civil Rights Music, I argued that it had four soundtracks. Gospel music is a major soundtrack. Freedom Song, a major soundtrack. So those are two secular soundtracks for the civil rights movement. It was a profoundly religious movement, if you will, but it also was open to folks that were so-called irreligious. And that's when we get to rhythm and blues, what we call R and B, and also wait for it, Andrew, rock and roll. Yes, I argue that rock and roll began as an African American, if you will, form of music, and in fact. If you look at the first decade of rock and roll between 1954 and 1964, before what American musicologists call the British Invasion in 1964, you're going to see rock and roll in the United States of America is incredibly dominated, if you will, by African-Americans. Some of the most iconic being folks like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Big Mama Thornton, so on and so forth. Part of the thesis of this concept of civil rights music is that African Americans can implicitly sing what we cannot explicitly say about the existential situation that's going on here. Whether we start talking about anti-Black racism, whether we talk about at that time Jim and Jane Crow segregation, what some folks even call American apartheid, where you have signs that say white and colored, all the while, Andrew, talking about democracy, talking about people getting together and creating a whole brand new society. And so there's a sense in which African Americans have always been able to put in music what we often can't say in political discourse or in social discourse. And a lot of that often revolves around the African American church, which is one of the few independently Black institutions, which is why you can see a lot of the political leaders also double as ministers or preachers. Of course, I'm thinking about Martin Luther King Jr., but also Malcolm X, right? And in fact, I don't know if we can really understand the civil rights movement without understanding the soundtracks of the movement and vice versa. Can you really understand Benny King singing, Stand By Me, the way that that was a coded message for civil rights workers, stand by me. When the night comes, please stand by me.
6: I won't cry. (laughs)
2: I mean, it almost sounds like a religious song. Is it kind of like a secular, sacred song, a secular, if you
1: will, freedom song? Just finally on this, has it been important to the civil rights movement at the time and the power of this music since that there's a real joy about a lot of it, despite the subject matter and despite the context, which separates it from very much the stereotype of the white protest singer tends to be, whereas if we think of Motown as the obvious example and if we think of those as protest songs, and I think we can, there's that vim, there's that life, there's that excitement about them
2: you know i love this because we have to be clear artistic protest, musical protest does not always and everywhere mirror political protest the artists have creative license so they can do what they will with their art and with whatever color palette or sonic color palette if i can borrow from duke ellington right and so again they're painting with many different colors and in fact andrew i want to fast forward to the black lives matter movement see we're living through a particular movement right now that I don't know if someone can understand Kendrick Lamar's iconic To Pimp a Butterfly album, if you don't understand BLM and that that's an anthem, when he says, we gon' be all right. We gon' be all right, we gon' be all right. Do you hear me, do you feel me, we gonna be all right. We gon' be all right. I'm just thinking, I have been at rallies and seen little tears trickle down people's faces, right? After somebody else has been murdered. And we hate Pope Paul when they kill us dead in the street for sure. And to a certain extent, that's very powerful. Beyonce's Lemonade album. And in fact, Beyonce's brand new Renaissance album. Can you really understand that if you don't understand the major movement at this time is called Black Lives Matter? And listen here, Andrew, the fact that we still have to say that, that lets you know we still have a long way to go, that we are still in the process of groping toward or limping toward American democracy. But let me tell you this before I go, Andrew. Those African-American youth in the 1960s singing about love, that in and of itself is a kind of protest. People don't think about how we love in the projects. So Bunny Whaler, Peter Tosh, Bob Marley, they saw these project kids. Wow. In Chicago. And they thought, hey, we sit up here in Trench Town. That's a better model for us than some of these other models. Let's take that. And hey, man, Island Records, London, England, I better stop. (laughs) (laughs)
0: that was Professor Rayland Rebecca speaking to Andrew Muller a little earlier on and that's all the time we have for today's edition of The Briefing, the warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producer Emma Searle, our studio manager Tamsin Howard and editing assistants came from Mariella Bevan The Briefing is back next week at the same time but for now from me Emma Nelson, goodbye, thanks for listening and a very happy new year to you